This is Joanna Brooks, fellow traveler in Mormon feminism and author of the Book of Mormon Girl, with a special request for you. You know, since the beginning of the Mormon feminist movement, we have published our own books. We have supported our own art projects, our own intellectuals. And I'm asking you one more time to pony up in support of one of our Mormon feminist sisters, who I think is the most exciting and soon to be most accomplished public historian in Mormonism today. That's our girl, Lindsay Hanson Park, who tears it up on this podcast each week, bringing us incredible insights about the Mormon past, including polygamy and its persistent influence on the way we live our lives today. Lindsay does her thing, bringing us brilliance for pennies. What does she make? Cents on the dollar that every male Mormon podcaster makes. If that, it's up to us. It's up to us. If Mormon feminist history matters to you, if having incisive, intelligent critique of racial inequality, gender inequality in the Mormon church matters to you, will you support this podcast? As Mormon feminists have always done for each other, we've always published our own books. We've always supported our own arts. Let's pitch in to support one of our own, doing crucial intellectual work that's going to stand the test of time. That's right. Go to feministmormonhousewivespodcast.org. Look for the donate button and use PayPal or whatever other means are at your disposal to become a monthly subscriber. Join me in becoming a subscriber to this podcast. Just $10 a month, $20 a month, and you can hold your head high and know that you're contributing to a long history of Mormon sisters doing it for themselves. Thank you. One, two, three, go. Feminist. Mormon. Housewives. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the Year of Polygamy series where we try to understand the practice of Mormon plural marriage. I'm really excited today to have on the podcast someone who knows this history firsthand because she has lived this history and lived it out in a very sort of public, famous way. Her name is Irene Spencer. She is a writer. She's an activist. She's a strong uh, woman who's been through a lot. And she was also married to a prophet, Verlin LeBaron. And if this is your first time tuning in and you've never heard any of the other episodes, you're going to need to listen to the episode where we talk about the LeBarons. It's very important that you tune in and listen to the LeBaron episode, episode number 76, The LeBarons. Or a lot of this interview might not make sense. So go ahead and listen to that first. But Irene, can you say hello? Hi. Very happy to be here. Yeah, so we are on a phone call right now because the connection's a little a little iffy. Uh so the audio might sound a little bit different, but Irene, you're down in Mexico currently, right? Yes, I came down to visit my children over the New Year's and everything, yes. Well, great. As I explained earlier, we've been sort of walking through this history uh with our listeners a story of polygamy, Mormon polygamy, and uh, we've gone through the past Joseph Smith up until now, and we've covered your story. We've covered the colonies in Mexico, and then we covered the story of the LeBaron group, Colonia LeBaron and all of that. So why don't you give us a sort of an outline of 
who you are, a short outline of your story, and then we'll sort of add context to it and figure out where you're at today. Okay. I was actually born in Salt Lake City in 1937, and at the time my father had four wives. My mother was the second wife, and uh, I am one of uh, 31 children. My father had fulfilled a Mormon mission. He went to Switzerland before I was born when he was young, and uh, his father was a polygamist, and he felt like he could not, when people would ask him about polygamy, he couldn't deny it, and uh, he had to keep it quiet that he was uh, from polygamy, and it really made him feel bad. But anyway, he was converted to it through the Section 132 of the Doctrine and Covenants, and so he got into plural marriage. And uh, my mother was the second wife, and we were taught that we had to live plural marriage or we would never receive our salvation. And uh, we were to be married to a good man, and we were told to try to marry as a plural wife to help our husband get at least seven women. So something I've been really curious about in doing this research is sort of the preparation you have as a child to enter plural marriage. I know growing up as an LDS girl, there's a lot of curriculum, there's a lot of activities, there's a lot of cultural support around the idea of a temple wedding, temple marriage. You know, I went to Young Women's and we wore a temple. We would wear uh, all white and our leaders would show their temple dresses and they were sort of preparing us for this. Was there something similar preparing you for the principle? Well, I got married when I was 16, and I have known girls that have got married at 9, 11, and 13, and uh, they a lot of them were just given to the man. They were placed. But I got to choose my husband, basically, and uh, I couldn't tell anyone about it. I was actually married underneath a tree there in Salt Lake City, and uh, it was done in total privacy, just a regular dress that I had, a little gingham dress that I got married in, and no one was there, my father and mother, no one was there except my husband and his first wife and the man that sealed us. In those times, everybody had to be very careful because this was in 1953, and they had just raided Colorado City. It was called Short Creek at the time, and they had arrested the men and women and tried to haul them off to Phoenix and different places, and so everybody was really worried about being uh, uh, arrested. And it was very uh, indelibly written in my mind because my own father had been arrested in, uh, I think it was 1945, and he spent two and a half years in Utah State Prison for polygamy. And so we lived in fear all our life, yet we knew that uh, we had been taught that if you did not live this, you would not make it into the celestial kingdom. So whatever sacrifice that we had to make, we just bit our bottom lip and, and uh, went into it. Anyway, and that's how I got into it. I came to Mexico uh, where the LeBarons had the, a little ranch, and later it became a compound, a cult, you want to say. And uh, I lived down here, and I gave birth to uh, 13 children. You talk a lot about this in your book, so I'm familiar with your story, but when you, you're young, you're 16, you get married, and you go to live with your husband and your sister wife, who's actually your sister, and you go to this ranch, and it's barren and run down, and you basically live a life of poverty. Is that right? 
Absolutely, we lived a life of poverty. We had no welfare, no nothing, no food stamps, no nothing. I mean, we grew gardens, uh, milked a cow or a few goats, and we lived very frugally. And uh, uh, my first baby, I didn't even have any prenatal care or anything. My first baby uh, died 20 minutes after it was born. I had uh, toxemia. And uh, at the time, we didn't believe in seeing doctors. We were told that doctors and lawyers were wicked and that we were to stay away from them depends uh, solely on God. But it was hard for me when I was young because I had seen girls grow up and being married off. And I knew one woman that she married a man. She was in her 40s. And uh, she married a man. And a couple of weeks later, he married her 9- and 11-year-old daughters. So he was married to the mother and the two two daughters at the same time. And even though I'd been taught that these things were right, I was appalled by it. I thought it was terrible that these girls were so young and they had no rights. And uh, so they were just married off. And I knew many girls. Well, I won't say many of them, but I personally knew two girls, and there were many more that uh, uh, people knew about that hadn't even uh, started their menses when they got married. They were so young. And uh, they were just told to get married and uh, to, for these guys to get wives. And it was like the men wanted to have uh, notches on their belts to see who, how many wives they could get and brag about. And to me, the women were the one that always suffered. So you're 16. You only know your sister and your husband at this point. You go to this ranch, and of course... There were rumors about this family, right? They, Your parents didn't approve. There were rumors that these people had a lot of mental issues. Yeah, my, my dad was very adamant about it because they had Lucinda who had uh, had a nervous breakdown when she was 16 and she never really ever came out of it. She uh, ended up dying in a mental hospital. And they had a brother, Ben, Benjamin, that was uh, loony. Uh, he did a lot of crazy things and... Uh, uh, and everybody knew about it, and my dad just figured they had insanity in the family, and he did not want me or Charlotte to marry Verlin. Now, Charlotte was the first wife, and she was my uh, half-sister, and her mother and my mother were half-sisters that were married to my father. So our kids ended up being brothers and sisters, plus they were first cousins. But... Uh, uh, it was very lonely. I came down here. I had no radio. We had no electricity for 17 years. We had to draw water out of the well. I had no magazines. We read three or four uh, religious books that we had, but we couldn't read any kind of novels or or any other kind of books at all. And it was, I was very lonely, uh, homesick, and uh, all I had ever known was Utah, and it was very, very hard on me. What was going through your head those first few years? You were suffering. You were homesick. Did you feel like you were doing the right thing? Did you feel like the worse the sacrifice, the bigger the blessings? How were you feeling? Well, I was devastated by it because when I lived in Salt Lake, we were considered poor, but my mother had been on welfare, and and it was heaven compared to what we had down here. But we were told that sacrifice brings forth the blessings of heaven, and so we were just, uh, you know, we just went ahead and did the best we could and, and uh, you know, raising all these children. And uh, another thing, I knew I had to stay down here because I was underage. I was only 16, and they had made these raids in uh, Arizona, 
And I figured if we went out there, we would probably be arrested and I would probably be taken away from my family. So you grow up in constant fear and hiding all the time. And it's really hard on a person when you have to cover up what you're doing and then think it's in the name of God. I always felt like if you're in a relationship and it's a right relationship, why it's worth telling people about, you know. Absolutely. And throughout this whole experience, you would have relationships with all different kinds of people, relationships with sister wives, relationship with your husband, relationships with your family and your children. And the relationship that that a lot of people are interested in is your relationship with Ervil LeBaron. Ervil LeBaron, if anyone followed the last episode knows, uh, is the one that killed a lot of people. Uh, what what was your relationship like with him? What, what did you think of Ervil? Ervil was my husband Verlin's brother. He was very charismatic. He was a couple of years older than, well, about four years older than Verlin. And uh, he talked religion 24-7. Uh, he had uh, married a Mexican wife. And he, uh, when I first got here, he tried to hit on me and told me that I belonged to him. And Verlin had to tell him that he was married to me in secret for him to stay away from me. But uh, he just was somebody that just took over. And little by little, he, after they, the LeBaron started a church and everything, why he ended up being one of the leaders. And he was taking women's or husband's wives away while they were gone on missions and marrying them to himself. And uh, when they got home, he'd tell them, hey, uh, she belonged to me in eternity and she's mine. And anyway, it caused a lot of friction. And finally, Joel who was a self-proclaimed prophet, their brother Joel, had him excommunicated from the church. And when he did, uh, Herbal got violent, and he ended up, in the long run, it was sad as could be, but he ended up killing some of my sister-in-laws and my nieces and my nephews, and all in all, he had 28 of our family and friends murdered. And we lived in very, very fearful times and in hiding. I actually moved to Nicaragua, lived on dirt floors and got water out of the creek and lived down there to keep from getting kills. And uh, it was really, really sad. And he was out to try to kill Verlin because they had put Verlin in as president of the church. And and uh, the second grand head office made him a patriarch, which Ervil had been. And Ervil was very violent about it. And he started his own church called the Church of the Lambs of God. And uh, he felt like he had read up on the blood atonement, uh, a lot of things that he found, uh, uh, you know, early church history and one thing or another, and he felt like people should pay their price and have their blood shed in order to do away with their sins because he said that Christ did not pay for all of our sins. But we lived in absolute fear. It was just, you'll never know, hiding. I actually took my children and hid in, a room next to the corrals at night, and I could hear the sheep, the goats bleating as I tried to sleep with one eye open, trying to protect my children, thinking that we could be killed at any time. And I tell you, uh, polygamy was bad enough, but herbal was worse than anything that we had ever been through. I truly cannot imagine what you went through during those years. And what you went through before, I mean, it's it's incredible. And I would encourage everyone to go listen to any of the books or read any of the books that you've written because, 
I mean, the story is just phenomenal. I, I can't imagine that sort of fear, especially protecting young children. And, and you talked about church history, and, and one thing that was clear to me in reading the story, the LeBaron story, and I think a lot of listeners have pointed out, that there are parallels to the LeBaron story and early church history. There's some violence narratives. There's this idea of family leadership and power. And so there's some parallels that, that we see history repeating itself. Did you contextualize that at the time? I mean, I as an LDS girl grew up never hearing about Joseph Smith's wives. I found out when I was 25, and so it came to as a shock to me. But how was church history taught to you? How did it make sense to you? Well, it never did. The killings never made any sense to me. I was appalled by it, but yet we had grown up. Most of the fundamentalists grew up uh, uh, listening to the sermons. They had the, what they call the uh, journals of Disky Six books, if I'm not you know, wrong that the church had put out, and in there it tells about blood atonement. And uh, uh, so anyway, we grew up knowing that it was something, and it was fearful that, you know. And also in section 132, where it tells you that you have to live plural marriage, it said if a woman does not accept it, that she will be destroyed. And I understood growing up that that destruction would come through blood atonement, having to pay my pay for my life with it for not going into it. That's one of the reasons that I attended four of my husband's weddings. I actually stood up in his wedding and took the bride by her white hand and gave her to my husband with a smile on my face, even though I was like a volcano in the inside. But I did it because I knew that I would not make it into heaven if I did not be obedient 100%. So I went ahead and did it in spite of the pain and in spite of the heartache. And people have asked me, how could you do such a thing? Well, the reason is, in Mormonism, we had been taught that our husband was our savior. And he was going to take us by the right hand and pull us through the veil into heaven if we had lived righteously. And they would tell us, who knows better how righteous you have lived and how obedient you have been than your own husband? No one does. And so our, our salvation was at stake, and we were told to not let one year go by without having babies be born. And uh, I know women that's had, I know one friend of mine that had 22 single births. I know women that's had, two or three women that had 18. I have sisters that have 16, 14, 13, and uh, 15. And I don't care how tired you were. I don't care how many varicose veins you had. I don't care what, you were to have a baby every single year. And I myself gave birth to 13 children by the time I was 34 years old. It's a very Mormon idea that, you know, women are valued for being nurturers and bringing their children into the world. That's kind of a Mormon doctrine that's really amplified in fundamentalism. If you want to know the truth, we were valued and praised because of children. They used to have me stand up and say, hey, Irene, I want you to stand up. And they'd tell the newcomers, this woman has had 12, 13 children and, you know, and use meetings as an example of what they should do. And the thing of it is, is that I had blood clots in my legs, the last two children I had, and, and I ended up having my last one, Caesarean, just to save my life. And uh, our, one, our bishop of the church came and told me that I had to go back in and 
undo my tie, untie my tubes, or I was going to go straight to hell because my salvation depended on how many children I could have. And I'd only had 13, and boy, at my age, I was only 35, I could probably have another five or so, you know. And the thing that was sad about it is that I didn't even get a driver's license until I was 40 years old because I drove on back roads here in Mexico, little old roads to take the kids to a school, but I never got on the highway. I never had a license. And they do this so that you will not leave. People say, why didn't you get out of your mess? Well, first place, you're going to hell. You're going to be burned forever. You're not going to have a husband in the next life. Your children belong to the man. And they would say, you can leave any time you want. Walk out that door if you want to. But the children stay in this home because they belong to the man. What woman in her right mind would walk, around, walk out and leave her children when that was the only reason she even had to get up in the morning? Who would do it? I came to the point in life where life got so tough. After he married so many wives, he had nine other wives, and you'd have to sit and wait for him to He'd go to the States and work for sometimes three months and come home and maybe stay a night and give everybody one night and leave again. And if you were the last on the list, you would just break your heart seeing him run around with these other women and hugging them and walking down the street and loving them. And I, I told him by the time he got to my house, I wasn't ready for love. I was ready for murder. <laughs> not, not quite, but anyway... Well, let's talk about Verlin for a minute, because in the book you speak quite affectionately about him, about him as a husband. Did I read that right, that you had a good relationship with him? Do you want to know that there was not a nicer guy that ever lived? I can honestly say that, and I've met a lot of men in my life. He was a wonderful man. He was kind. He would sit and talk to you. He had a lot of charisma, but he wasn't forceful. He like to, I mean, he would sit and try to reason with you, and, and one thing or another, he was a very, very good man. And uh, that's another reason why I stayed as long as I did, because I felt like that I needed a man, you know, for my, you know, to exalt me, a man that was going to, that was going to save me. But finally, when I, after I had my tubes tied, and I was told that I was going to go to hell, I felt like I just wept and cried, and I thought, how could God do this to me? Here I've laid my life down and had all these children, and now just because I don't have any more, I, I will go to hell. And Berlin said, well, don't worry. If you die, uh, Charlotte and Lucy, Lucy was the third wife, said Charlotte and Lucy will raise your children. Well, isn't that wonderful? I realized how expendable I was. They could just get rid of me and life goes on. You know what I mean? I had a complete nervous breakdown. I didn't go crazy. I just went where I could not function. I couldn't take care of my children. I cried night and day, and I was suicidal, and I just wanted to commit suicide. I had nothing to live for. And, you know, I will tell everybody, it's the best thing that ever happened to me because until you get so far down, you will not start listening to yourself. And in that moment, I realized they could not send me to hell. Why? Because I was already there. And that's when I left. Wow, that is incredibly powerful. I love how you phrased that. Uh, and you know, a lot of Mormon women to a degree have had to grapple with this idea of polygamy too, thinking, you know, if that is heaven for me, that will be hell and I can't reconcile that. And I really like this idea that you're saying of looking inside yourself because I think Mormonism doesn't do a really good job at teaching people to look inside themselves. We're taught to look to our leaders 
and to look to our parents and to look to our community. And we're getting all this external validation, but we're not taught a lot to look inside ourselves. We're taught to look to, you know, listen for the Holy Ghost, but that's also supposed to be this external thing delivering a message. And it's never really focused on what we want or what we think or what we know to be right or wrong. It always has to be validated by this external source. Well, I think that most, from women, from everybody, we're told to follow our leaders. And uh, even back in the journals, the discourses that were put out by the church, that uh, it was Heber C. Kimball. He said that if you're told to do something and you believe it's wrong, do it anyway, and the Lord will deal with your husband. But you be obedient no matter what. And the thing of it is, we were taught strict obedience. And the thing of it is, you get to the point in life where you have nothing to live for. Now, I tell everybody I had more religion than most people accumulate in a lifetime. I knew Mormonism inside out and backwards and up and down, okay, everything about it. But I was not fulfilled. I was not happy. And I kind of hated God to think that he would make us suffer, make us women go through all this kind of stuff. And I was mad because he said that we had to have 15, 20 kids And yet he said he only had one begotten son who was Jesus Christ. Now, do you think that was fair? That's actually never occurred to me before. What an interesting, interesting idea. Yeah. Anyway, then I became, I got out of it after I had had a nervous breakdown. And I told Verona I was taking the kids and he told me, no, they belong to him. And I looked at him and I said, he said, I'm going to keep the kids. And I said, it will be over my dead body. And when I said it like that, he looked and said, well, nobody's going to kill you. And when he said that, I knew that even if they did kill me, that I was not going to sit around and see my little children, my girls especially, grow up in polygamy and suffer the same consequences that I did because we were trying to serve a God. And the thing of it is, these men set themselves up like they were gods already, these prophets. And that's why I became a born-again Christian. I will tell you, I don't belong to any denomination, and I never will ever belong to a a denomination. But I believe that uh, it's Christ or nothing, and I believe that he is my all, and he's given me peace. And uh, I will never follow a man, because they're man-made rules. Let's talk about this for a minute, because I'm so interested in this idea of authority. And, you know, when I was growing up LDS, and I would hear about other groups, I would think, how can you believe that? How can you believe that guy not really being reflective of my own religion? And you had, you had this mix of authority. You had Rulon Allred, who is your uncle, and he was a gr- the leader of the AUB. And yet, you know, you were also following authority of the LeBarons. He was my mother's full brother. Rulon Allred was an herbal had sent one of his wives up and had him murdered. But he was a marvelous, wonderful man. So your uncle Rulon was very critical of the LeBarons. He didn't think that they had any authority. Of course, he was running the AUB at the time. And so there was all this question of if they had authority, they were claiming authority. So where did you stand on this? Did you believe that Joel, your brother-in-law, had the authority? Did you Did you believe in what he was saying? I didn't believe in anything. In fact, I wept and cried. It took Verlon over two years to accept it. They argued religion day and night and everything, but I will tell you the truth. When Berlin accepted it and decided Joel was a prophet, I was the obedient wife that went along, but I'll tell you why I did it. I wanted to be number one. I wanted to be accepted. I had a way in 
of being having preference, knowing that I was doing whatever he wanted me to do. And that's why I did it. I was obedient to the last thing because I wanted him to love me, and I figured he would love me more if I followed him. That is fascinating. I just, my head is spinning with so many questions. I want to pick apart so much of that statement. One of the things I want to say is I've talked to polygamy advocates and they always try to downplay this jealousy aspect. Even some historians I know do the same thing. They say, you know, yeah, there's normal jealousies, the key word being normal, but it's not really that big of a deal. So I'm really curious as to that, uh, that aspect in your own relationship, as well as what it was like, what it felt like to be in a marriage like this, since you have been in a monogamous marriage now and a plural marriage. You know what? We put on this facade and told everybody, oh, we love each other. This is wonderful. And I will tell you one thing. We never fought. I never fought with another wife in the 28 years that I was married. Never. We had differences. But if we did, we took them to our husband and he settled them. And we tried to love each other. We tried to live our religion because our salvation uh, uh, depended on it. But I do want you to know that every woman is jealous. And if they say they're not, they are a liar. And I will tell you something. I lied for years and told people, oh, I'm not jealous. I love my sister wives. Here, I'll give you one more. I'll go to your wedding. I'll stand up here and give you this beautiful girl, you know. But I was so jealous. I would go to bed at night and weep and cry so brokenhearted that you just can't hardly even comprehend how it was. And you know, now that I've stood up for myself, I look back and I believe from the bottom of my heart, God gave us jealousy to protect our mates. I really believe that. I believe he gave us jealousy to protect our mates. If we don't care, then anybody can move in on that territory. And that's what I believe. And I think it's important to note that there's sort of this huge double standard that exists outside of, you know, Mormonism, but is really amplified in this polygamy scenario, in this script of jealousy, that men, you know, it's not a, really a value that's tested for them. And yet with women, these jealousies are a way to refine. It's a way to test. It's a way to make you better. It's a bigger sacrifice. And jealousy, you know, opens up your heart to the, to the Lord. And yet you came in contact with a lot of men that found you attractive when you were in Colonial LeBaron. And if the tables were turned, I wonder if those same scripts would have applied to the men. Well, you know, I knew that if I ever married anybody else or committed adultery, that I would be destroyed. And this is what's funny about it. A man can have as many sexual partners every other night. And every night, he's got his ten wives lined up, and he stays with one, and the next night with the other one, and the next night with the other one. And they, that's fine. He can do that. But, boy, we look cross-eyed at another man, and, and they, can, they want to spill our blood. You know what I mean? We will yeah. be destroyed. And I think it is shameful. I think that it's a very unjust God that would even uh, consider <laughs> putting all these stipulations on a woman. And uh, I, just, I just don't believe it. I believe that God is a good, loving God, and he made us all in his image, and I think I have just as many rights as a man does. Mostly, I think that women have a right to be happy. God said that uh, man is, the Bible says man is, that he might have joy. And I think a woman deserves a little too. A big amen, sister. I, I agree with you there. And, and that's what is odd to me. You know, this, the script of jealousy, it is, it is something used to keep people in line. It's something 
sold off as a spiritual value that if you keep your jealousies in check, then you're being more spiritual, more pernicious than experiencing the jealousy are the stories that are told around the jealousy, that it's that it is a spiritual value, that it is a blessing, that the less jealous you are, the better off you're going to be in God's eyes. Or that exactly. you're being selfish. We, we punish ourselves and we think that we're not any good and we just, you know, we, I'll tell you the greatest thing that I learned through polygamy and life and everything, the number one thing, I know that the reason everybody is living polygamy is because they do not love themselves. I had to learn to love myself, and I'll tell you, it, when I learned to love myself, I refused to let somebody take advantage of me, step on me, belittle me, put me down, and tell me that I'm inferior or anything else because I, too, was made in the image of God. Yes, exactly, and I think that this is part of the thing with plural marriage is if you come to a relationship broken, a monogamous relationship it really makes things difficult. You have to be a whole person for there to be a whole authentic relationship. And in polygamy, it's just so much more complicated when you're dealing with all these broken people. So answer this question for me. If you were to go back and tell your 16 or 17 or 18-year-old self these things now, do you think you would have listened? I know at the time I was in love with a guy named Glenn and I wanted to marry him. But at the time, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that if I had married him, that I would have had a nervous breakdown because I would have felt like I was so close to it anyway, and that's what kind of switched me over. Uh, Charlotte's mother, who is my mother's sister, she's my dad's second wife, Rhea Coons, she had told me that the Lord had showed her that I belonged to Verlin and that I should, you know, marry Charlotte's husband and, and that uh, she knew it and that the Lord had told her that there wasn't going to be insanity in our family, you know, and everything. And I actually went to Ruin Allred, who was our leader at the time, and he gave permission because he believed in Florin and Verlin. He had met them and thought they were wonderful boys. He really had a very, you know, uh, high, high esteem for them. So that's why I went ahead and married him. But I think that I really would have had a nervous breakdown had I done it because I was so filled with fear from the day that I was born that if I didn't do certain things that I would be destroyed. And that fear of destruction just actually broke my heart. You know, it wrung my heart. It stayed within me. I couldn't function. But anyway, uh, I want to say one more thing that Cody Brown, uh, these guys were from All Red Group, the same group that I was from. And I think it's sad that they're on TV making everybody say how wonderful plural marriage is and how they love it. Now, I want you to know the reason they love it is because they will go to hell if they don't live it. And, that's because, and I know because I was there, and I know many other people were there. We say, oh, we love it. We want to do it. We love our sister wives. You know, when your back's turned, you want to pull their hair out and tell them off and and, uh, and smack your husband a couple of times when you're at it, you know. <laughs> I can only imagine. So can I ask you some questions that some listeners sent to me? You can ask me anything you want. Nothing's off limits with me. So one listener was curious about your relationship with Joseph Smith, your thoughts on him, and how they've evolved over time. Well, if you will... You know, Warren Jeffs, I have five sisters that were in his group, and I have many nieces and everybody in Warren Jeffs' group. Warren Jeff is doing the very same thing that Joseph Smith did. Joseph Smith married 14- and 15-year-old girls. You read history's sake, and it's just like Joseph Smith over again. 
I used to think that Joseph Smith was a god, and if I even said his name wrong, that I'd go to hell. But I do not believe that Joseph Smith was a prophet. Uh, I don't care how good of a man he may have been. I'm not saying that, but I do not believe he was a prophet. And after living among the LeBarons and after seeing all the things that happened, I told people, I told my girlfriend one day, I said, this is just like if we were living in the days of Joseph Smith, the same thing, the same things that are happening here. Uh, and so I do not believe in Joseph Smith, no. I believe that... Uh, there's only one God, and I believe that he's Jesus Christ, and uh, I think that he's going to judge me, and I thank God for that. Yeah, I know a lot of people that would make similar comparisons to that, so thank you for answering that question. Another question asks about your children. I know in your book you talked about some of your children still being tied up in polygamy. Yeah, I, at one time I had six people that were in it, in it, and right now I've got one, and I've got one is all that's in it. But I have, from the time I sold my book, and everything I've used my money to help them get out and get vehicles and get into the outside world. People don't realize when you're raised in a cult, you're afraid of the outside world. You're afraid to go out. It's actually like it's so frightening. Uh, you don't even know how to socialize. And we were taught that these people would destroy us if we went out there, that they would absolutely destroy us. But the thing that I'm happy about, I have 127 grandchildren and 124 great-grandchildren. And a big part of them have become Christians, and I'm so glad that they're at least uh, getting out of this box and doing something. And I w want to say that none of my children have ever had any po bipolar problems or anything. They're all doing well, all entrepreneurs, working, uh, wonderful kids, and I'm very proud of them. And I am in Mexico right now. I came down to visit my children for Christmas, and I'm staying here. Because I feel like that I want to be an influence. People tell them I'm wicked. I've given up Mormonism. I've done this. I've done that. I, I talk against polygamy. And so, so what? These little kids adore me, and I want them to know for themselves who and what their grandmother was. And that's why I'm here. That's really lovely. And I think a lot of our listeners will be able to relate to that story in some way because many of our listeners that identify as a feminist Mormon or an LGBT ally are sometimes treated differently because of their family because of that. So I just want to say that I admire you for that and I acknowledge the struggle because it's really, really hard. And that, that reminds me, I've been trying to figure out, you know, what has happened to these groups if there's, you know, still remnants of the LeBaron groups and remnants of the LeBaron religion. Is that why your family is in Mexico? Are they still part of that? Well, uh, this, like this, none of my kids believe in the religion. None, not one of my children believes that Joel's a prophet, thank God. Not one of them. Thanks to your oh. truly. <laughs> not one of them. But uh, I have about four of my kids that have become Christians. But they believe the same thing. They'll never belong to an organized religion. They just believe in Christ. I'll tell you one thing. I threw out more religion than most people accumulate in a lifetime. But life isn't about religion. It's about a relationship with our God. And everybody can go direct, have a direct line to him. We don't need all these prophets to tell us how high to jump and how many hoops to jump through, you know? Yeah, but obviously you're down in Mexico, so there's still some connection there. But they're not there because of polygamy? Oh, yeah, they still have it. They were born and raised here, and they have farms. They have pecan farms, and, they, and, and they're, they're farmers, and they do well. I have some of them that are in the oil business in North Dakota, and 
and uh, I have them in Idaho, I have them in California, uh, but uh, anyway, I, I take them around, sometimes I'll go to Alaska and stay up there with the kids that I have up there, or I go to North Dakota, and my husband died two years ago this month, and uh, so I'm free, And but I just feel like that I want to be with my ch- ch- children and my posterity and give them a few words of wisdom and help them make some sound choices because, you know, we're all, we're all where we're at because of the choices that we have made. Oh, absolutely. And that brings me to another question someone asked. Do you feel like you gained anything from living plural marriage? Do you feel like you gained any sort of gifts, spiritual or otherwise, from going through something like this? Well, I will tell you this. People have asked me, said, oh, I wish you never had to go through plural marriage. I actually taught how to give, how to share. All the children, my husband had 58 children. He had 29 daughters and 29 sons. Everyone loved me. I'm just auntie. Everybody else is Aunt Lucy and Aunt Charlotte, but I'm just auntie. I fed him. I loved him. I cared for him. And I wouldn't trade that for anything because of the bonds that we have. I learned a lot through plural marriage. I learned a lot through hard times and sharing. But at the same time, I feel that everything that happens to us happens for us. And I wouldn't be the person that I am today had I not experienced plural marriage and had I not suffered and even the murders and all the things that's happened. I actually have uh, 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 nine nieces and nephews and one first cousin that committed suicide. And I've had as much heartbreak as you can just imagine with anything and everybody. I've lost two children. I lost one of my daughters at 35 from breast cancer. And, uh, but anyway, uh, it has made me a better person. It's made me have, find peace. It's made me have joy. It's made me put, totally surrender to God and he will work it out because he has a plan for our lives. And his plan is so much better than we could ever dream of. But his plan is for us to be able to stand our, on our own two feet and be that child of God that he made us to be. And that means you and me and every other woman. Well, first of all, I'm so sorry for all your losses. But I'm really inspired by the empowerment that you have come from this. And I, I love it. It's very feminist about women claiming their power, claiming who they are without being told who they are. I just have to bring it up in section... Uh, 132, it tells you if you don't live polygamy, you'll be damned. Yet in 1830, when Joseph Smith published the Book of Mormon, you can go into the Book of Jacob, I think it's chapter 4, if I'm not wrong, but in Jacob 4, I think, in the Book of Mormon, they asked God how he justified Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in living polygamy. And he said, quote him, he said that it was a, a crime, that it was a crime, and that how he was saddened because he could hear the cries of the women ascend unto him. And he said right in there that every man should have just one wife, and concubines, he should have none. Now, this is written in 1830, and at that time, that Joseph Smith wrote that, Joseph Smith was taking plural wives. And so and it's, it's documented history. And uh, so, uh, you know, my God, he's the same today and forever. And uh, why should they say it's an abomination and a crime in the most perfect book that they say on earth, which they say is the Book of Mormon, and then later 
they say, oh, well, we're going to go ahead and live it because uh, God wants us to have all these wives and all our children. And another thing that's sad for a woman, all I had to look forward to to go to heaven and be with all these other women and pop out babies eternally. And, you know, it's not fun. I, I, I just thought that wasn't my cup of tea, you know. <laughs> yeah, this is something feminist Mormons talk about all the time, which is our heaven really, all they've relegated us to do is to have babies. And if you're living that... And, uh, many groups of LDS, uh, many Mormon groups live this, including the LDS, where they believe that children are the most important thing, having children are the most important thing. If you're living that on earth, that is just a small taste of what heaven's going to be. And while kids are great, I love my kids. I can't imagine just being pregnant forever and ever and ever. Pregnancy was miserable for me. Absolutely miserable. Well, you know, I have to bring it up because it's a, a feminist woman thing that uh, most of the fundamentalists, the largest part of them, the, at least the all-red group that I grew up in, and uh, I knew several other groups and, that were in it, they don't even believe in having sex except for procreation. And I remember one of my aunts said to me when I was about 15, oh, Irene, one of the, pro- I think it was Heber C. Kimball, she said, had a wife named Lucy, and she, he only had sex with her nine times, and she bore nine beautiful children. Isn't that lovely? You know? In other words, a man can go and, and have sex and enjoy it, but boy, a woman's not going to. She's going to have those children, and, and you enjoy yourself, and it's, those kids are going to be born in sin. And it's just ridiculous. They take everything away from you except your duty to uh, bear these children t- for their kingdom mind you, for their kingdom. We are pawns in there that uh, uh, just keep this organized, keep it, you know, we push out all these babies to keep these uh, cults expanding and alive. If they didn't do it, they would not go on existing. And, uh, you know, uh, we'd go to hell if we practiced birth control. But, you know, I think the saddest thing in the world, people say, oh, we can live polygamy. It's like Cody Brown. And we can live, it's adults, we're consenting adults. Where in the H-E double toothpicks are the children? Don't they consider these children that are hungry, that are cold? I want you to know that I was one of 31 children just lost in the shuffle somewhere. And I tell you, it's no fun not to have any recognition, not to be validated, not to be loved, not to have proper clothing and the things. And for them to say, well, we're doing this because we want to, I want to tell you, they did not do me a favor by bringing me into polygamy. They did not do me a favor. So you talk about being lost in the shuffle, and that was kind of your worldview, how you grew up, and then you lived polygamy for so long. So one of the listeners asked, what was the transition like for you? I know that you became a born-again Christian, you married a monogamous man and lived in monogamy, and you left that life behind. What was the transition like for you? Yeah, I've shed many a tear. I, um, My sister, Rebecca Kimball, uh, she's an advocate for, you know, and talk, she has her own shows and stuff, does thing on polygamy too, but she, if it hadn't been for her, I wouldn't be here today. She held my hand and she would tell me, Irene, you have a right to be wrong. You have a right to be wrong. You have a right to think for yourself. And I would weep and cry and she'd tell me, You're, you are okay. I thought I wasn't okay unless my husband said I was okay and gave me permission to be saved, you know. But it is hard and nobody will understand. I hear people say, how can these stupid women stay in these 
these things. You know, they stay there because it's so painful. The mental anguish is so excruciating that you can't even fathom it. You can't even know what these women go through. And it breaks my heart to see that they have to suffer because they've been brainwashed all their life that they will be destroyed if they do not listen to the brethren, you know. Do you ever find yourself holding on to any of those old mindsets, having them creep up on you? No, I don't. I get angry when I, I get angry when I see them. Like I hear people say, uh, people say, hey, like right now, there's very, very few people in, in Colonial LeBaron that live polygamy. Very few. Most people have given up because men have 60 and 70 and 80 children. And these kids have got tired of not having a father and everything. And so most of them have turned against it and don't even have any religion. That's what's sad about it. They have given up anything, everything. But, uh, no, I do not believe for one minute that, uh, uh, you know, I don't believe that any of it's true. I think it's just been a sad thing that people have been caught up in that has caused nothing but abuse. It's nothing but abuse to the children, abuse to the wives. It's uh, mental abuse. It's emotional abuse. And uh, it's it, it's a time as this that it should come to an end. And the only way it is is for us to stand up and say no more. I will not put up with this for another minute. What about your sister wives, the women that you spent all this time with and had these, you know, shared this life together? Do you have a relationship with them still? I ended up going to a wedding here a few months ago, two or three months ago, and I ended up seeing five of my sister wives. We still hug each other and say hello, and we're we're civil to each other. It's not like we want to run over and have tea and, and you know, whatever, but we're civil to each other. And... uh I, I'm respectful for them, and I look at them and think, you know, they probably did have it hard putting up with me, you know, because I was outspoken and couldn't keep my mouth shut, you know. They, they, <laughs> they probably did have a hard time. But we were all in it, and I think we've come to the point where we've all just realized that uh, that was in the past, and we move forward. And I think that love is the greatest thing in the world and forgiveness. To me, uh, God said to forgive 70 times 7. And I have forgiven any and everybody that I possibly know of because, you know, you don't do it for them. You do it for yourself. You might have peace and joy and love. Yeah, that's a lot of hard work, a lot of hard work. And I appreciate uh, your willingness to share to share that part of your journey. Another listener asks about Ervil's family, about Ervil's wives and his children. What happened with them? I imagine there's a lot of forgiveness and um bridges that would have need to have been built again after that well you know uh he moved to texas to dallas and took them all there for a long time and and a lot of the kids still live there and it's funny because two or three years ago three or four of verbal's kids that i had never met came down here and i wasn't here at the time but they came down here and met their some of their brothers and sisters and cousins and they didn't know how they were going to be treated because their father was this mormon man and they referred him to but everybody loved on him and treated him great and they have come back and I went to a funeral and ran into three of them, and they hugged me and loved me, and they're beautiful children. It's not their fault because they had such a crazy dad, you know what I mean? Yeah, are they out of polygamy, or are they still in it? No, they're, they're all out of it. In fact, a couple of them are actually atheists, and they've got so sick and tired of all the stuff that happened, and they, you know, that they, uh, and we really don't have anything, we don't associate with that side of the family, uh, uh, we stay away from him because of all the pain and the heartache and everything that we went through. And 
we had no trust in them for years. And even though they're in jail and they're doing things, it's not somebody that I'd want to go hang around with. You know what I mean? Oh, goodness. I don't blame you there. I completely understand that. But are there any remnants of their church? Is anyone still practicing either church, uh, Joel's and Verlin's or Ervil's? Well, they taught that when if Ervil died, and, I mean, if Joel died and Verlin died, that the church would be over. That's what they said because they figured they had two grand head offices. One was the Melchizedek and one was the um, Aaronic, but there were two offices and said that if they, the, if they died, it would be over. So for a long time, they just held meetings, but nobody thought they had anything. And just the last year, the guys down here got together, a few of them, and started baptizing people, and, and they're still talking about Joel and one thing or another, you know. But uh, it's, it's very, very few of them, and I think it'll fizzle out. And the hit list, Ervil's hit list that he came up with that you were on, it's not active, right? I know that there were some questions all the way up until, like, 2010. Well, you know, I was on his hit list, and that's why I went to Nicaragua to hide. My husband, Berlin, was on his hit list. And I tell you, it's absolutely fearful. Where do you run when you've got all these children and you're, you know, it, it, I live in so much mental pain, so much heartache. But, you know, the wonderful thing about it is is that I have total peace, and everything that's happened in the past is buried and gone. And when people bring it up and say, oh, Irene, I feel bad you went through this, I have to kind of question myself and think, went through what, you know, because I have so buried it in the past, it's gone, you know. Tell us more about that. I'm interested because a lot of our listeners are, you know, moving through a transition in their faith. So I'm interested in how you transitioned with your views of God. I actually gave Book of Mormon classes here in the Church of the Firstborn for several years to all the youth and knew the Book of Mormon inside and out. And uh, I took it because my son had become a Christian, one of my sons up in Alaska, and I went up there. He flew me up there, and I went up with my Book of Mormon under my arm, and, boy, I was going to blast him. But I went up there, and he asked me to go to his church, and I didn't want to, because Joseph Smith said that all Christian churches were an abomination to him and that none of them were right and that we should stay away from them. So I went, and I... He stayed in the back pew so that I could sit there that if I saw the devil lurking around that I could make my exit. But they started raising their hands and they started singing and I had never heard such beauty. Every song they praised Christ, they honored him, they glorified him, they did it wasn't we thank thee, oh God, for a prophet and, and this and that, but they were praising him and honoring him. And I actually looked and their hands were raised and in that moment it was like they were wooing somebody. They were in love with somebody. And I started weeping from the depths of my soul. I knew whatever they had I wanted. And I really didn't know who God was. I was taught that Adam was our God. And uh, they were saying that Jesus Christ was our God. But I cried out in my spirit and I just said, God, whoever you are, I want to know who you are, Lord. And in that moment, it was like love, like I was enveloped in the greatest love, like a womb of love. And God actually spoke to my heart and he said, Irene, no one will love you more than I will love you. He said, uh, no one will love you more than I love you. And I knew in that moment that he was God, he was my Savior, that he was Christ. And I tell everybody, he lifted every bit of pain from my heart. And he lifted all nine wives off from my shoulders. He took the whole package with him. And he said, Irene, I will give you peace. And I have had peace ever since. And I just praise him and honor him because of that. That is beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that with me. Is there anything else you want to share with maybe our fundamentalist listeners out there? 
Well, I want to say the fundamentalists, that there's a lot of us that have got out of the box and have woken up and, and found out that there's better things. And the better thing is to think for ourselves. Uh, we were told that man is that uh, we came here for our agency, and yet let us try to you with our agency, and we're all put down, especially women. And we came here for our agency, and I say, you only have one life, and live it to its fullest. And the fullest is to be able to love, to think for yourself, to stand on your own two feet and to be the beautiful person that you are and you need to find out what your purpose is in life and go for it because God has all our dreams and he's ready to fulfill all of them as women and we have a right to them. Well, I just appreciate you coming on and telling your story with such courage and it's inspirational to many of us and I really appreciate it. So I'm sure that many of my listeners are going to want to know more about you and how to look you up and read more about your story. So tell us where to find you and how we can support you. Well, if they would go to www.irenespencerbooks.com, it's plural, books.com. I have a website and they can get uh, books. They'll all be signed by me. And also all my books are on Kindle. I have three of them out. They're on Kindle and they can uh, get on Kindle and get them. And, uh, I am writing another book. I've, I've got it all written. I've just got to put it together, hope to get it published this year. But it's about the adoption. I adopted a little girl, the one that died at 35. And it's called The Unexpected Gift. And uh, I, I got her as my ninth child. And it's a beautiful story in her dying. And I'm, I, I promised her that I would tell the world how I got her. But anyway, I really appreciate talking to you guys, and I hope that some woman out there will realize that if I can do it, having 13 children and nine other wives, that they can do it because, you know, you just have to believe that you can, and God will hold your hand through the whole thing. He did me. Irene, thanks so much for coming on. I think that you've really given us some great perspectives, and it's been a real pleasure for me to interview you, and we were able to get this going uh, sort of last minute tonight on the phone. So thank you so much for that. And I would just encourage everyone out there to go buy Irene's book, go support her. She has an incredible, incredible story to tell, a one in a million story. And uh, everyone should be reading it and supporting women who do work like this. So thanks again, Irene, for coming on. And thanks everyone for listening to the another episode of the Year Polygamy series. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure.